0: As we are coming to a very important part of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 11 and following, if you'll turn there, Uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, is uh, speaking to the Corinthians about how they have abandoned his apostolic office and his apostolic authority and his apostolic message, and he is representing himself to the Corinthians as the messenger of God, and the ones to whom they should be listening. And he compares himself to these so-called super apostles who have impressed them so much and have caused them to turn aside from the gospel because they've been more impressed with the messenger, because they're more philosophical, they're more eloquent, and they're certainly better looking than the apostle Paul. And also because they insisted on taking a collection. And sometimes, you know, men feel like they're getting what they pay for. So you don't pay anything for it. Maybe it's not worth as much as something you paid for. And Paul is fighting all of that uh, within the local church in Corinth so that they will preserve uh, their relationship with Jesus Christ through the one and only gospel. And you'll find that, that uh, in your church life, in your life as a Christian, if you're walking with him, you will face these things all the time. You'll face these discussions in your family, uh, among your friends, and even in your churches. It's been going on for 2,000 years. The gospel is always attacked. People try to tame the gospel, morph the gospel, turn it into something their their flesh is more comfortable with. This sounds more reasonable to them. The gospel is always being uh, chipped away at. So the Apostle Paul rises up, and here we see uh, a clear uh, exposition of the gospel, one of the clearest you'll find in the Bible in this text we're going to read. But you also see clear motives of one who is a messenger of Christ. And as we've seen before, this is perhaps Paul's most passionate letter. And we're, we, we find the innards of the apostle here. And uh, subsequently, we can examine the innards of a real Christian. What does a real Christian look like? What, how does a Christian think? What, how does he feel when the gospel is under attack? Paul here is an example. And Paul says to us over and over again in his his epistles, come follow me as I follow Christ. He says that seven times in in the epistles, to imitate him. So as we look at this and see the heart and the message of the Apostle Paul, it's incumbent upon us to examine ourselves and be sure that our hearts and our message are equally aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn then to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. Hear the word of God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Okay, let's look first of all at the motives of a Christian messenger. And in verses 11 through 15, we see Christian messengers have distinctive motives. And here, the Apostle Paul lines out for us the two key motives of the man who wants to communicate rightly the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. Whether you're communicating it to other people personally here in Memphis, among your friends and family, or whether you're communicating it to the far reaches of the world through missionaries. The motives are the same. The first motive is fear or reverence. Same word for reverence and fear uh, in the Greek and in the Hebrew for that matter. So our first motive is reverence. And remember what the Apostle Paul is building upon, what the literary context is here. If you look back, you remember in the... In the latter verses of the previous section, uh, in verse 10 in particular, uh, he says that, that uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord comes to us when we contemplate Him as judge in all of His glory. That's the reason it's important for us to contemplate the future contemplate the return of Christ, get that vision in our minds, and you say, well, why should I have fear if I know I'm not going to be judged? Because Jesus Christ has died in my place, all my sins are forgiven, and that judgment won't fall on me. Why, how does that inspire fear? If you have the true vision of the return of Jesus Christ in your mind, even though you're not being judged as guilty... It is an awesome scene, brothers. It, it, God in all of His glory will knock you on your keister and blind your eyes. I mean, look at the, how the Apostle John reacted in in, John, in Revelation chapter 1 when he saw the Lord. Look how Isaiah reacted when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah wasn't condemned. John wasn't condemned. But it almost killed him just to behold the glory of God in his judging role. So we envision God as He is, the judge of all the earth, and we envision what it must be like when Jesus Christ returns and we have fear and reverence. We have awe of Him. And it's absolutely essential that we have awe. Because you'll find here the Apostle Paul says, I'm going all over Europe and Asia because of the reverence of Christ, because of my fear of Him, because I'm awestruck with His glory. You find the similar uh, response with Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And John tells us in John chapter 12 that the one Isaiah actually saw was a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. So that was Christ who appeared to Isaiah. What happens a few verses later in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and experiences the seraphim who are singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah ultimately hears the voice of the Lord who says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The triune God says to Himself in the plural. Who will go for us? And Isaiah, who has now the fear of the Lord, says, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah has experienced both the fear of the Lord and gratitude to the Lord for His grace. Because you remember in Isaiah 6, God Sends the seraph to go to the uh, altar and take a coal and sizzle Isaiah's lips and to say your sins are taken away and your transgressions atoned for. So it's both the fear of the Lord and love for the Lord. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. That is the paradigm for every faithful witness of the Lord. We are moved by His glory. We are awestruck uh, by His greatness. So we are in continual fear and and reverence. That's what reverence is. That's the reason reason that when we go to church, there's a reverent spirit. Why? It's the fear of the Lord. And what we're told by the, the wisest man who ever lived before Jesus Christ, Solomon, he said to his children, Remember, boys, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when Solomon was training young princes in the royal court, he said the first thing you've got to get is the fear of the Lord. You're not going to learn anything about nature or about supernature and be able to put it all together in a package, in a mental package, until you get this right, the fear of the Lord. So when we see God as creator, sustainer, and judge, and redeemer, we revere Him. So all learning begins with the fear of the Lord. All ministry begins with the fear of the Lord. So we cultivate a knowledge of the greatness and the glory of God uh, in His uh, being. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, uh, uh, What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. He's saying, when you're awestruck, sometimes you're beside yourself. When you see God as He is, look at the ones who saw Him. Saul on the road to Damascus. Isaiah with the Lord high and lifted up. John Revelation 1, they were beside themselves. And Paul says, when I contemplate God, sometimes I'm beside myself. It's all for God. So remember, brothers, when we are sharing the gospel with anybody, the first motive is not our sympathy for other people, even in their lost stage. The most tragic human reality in this world is that some men and women are brought into this all of them are brought into this world under condemnation and some of them never hear the gospel and some of them are under the eternal judgment of God. There is no greater tragedy than that. But even that tragedy and solving that tragedy is not our primary motive. Our primary motive is to is to persuade men because of the fear of God. And that must always be the a driving motive of all of us in our mission here, all of our missionaries around the world, it is the awesome glory of the living God. And Paul says, you're looking at other people and you're impressed with them because of their outward appearance. I'm telling you what's in my heart. And anybody who shares the gospel and knows the gospel, you will find in their heart a deep reverence for the Lord. That's what he's saying in this first motive. Now look at the second motive in verses 13b-15, through 15, and that is love. So there are twin motives for your Christian mission. If you're walking in the steps of the Apostle Paul, who's walking in the steps of the Lord Jesus. Twin motives. The reverence and fear of God and love, the love for God. But notice Paul first mentions love for others. He had said before, if we are beside ourselves, that is for God. But he says in verse 13b, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. So Paul says the fear of God uh, makes us appear sometimes to be just out, out of our minds. That's because we're worshiping God. But when we're in our right minds, we are doing that for your sake. We're coming to you on the basis of revelation and reason. What we're saying to you is not unreasonable. It's not contrary to logic. We're in our right minds. We have sound minds. We're communicating history and logic and revelation to you. At the same time, we're in our right minds for your sake because we have a real, genuine love for lost people. And that's something else that needs to be cultivated. And the longer you're a Christian, actually, I think, the more you need to cultivate it. Because the longer you're a Christian, the more you tend to have only Christian friends as your closest associates. And sometimes you lose your sympathy for the guys that you used to hang out with. And the Apostle Paul never let that happen to him. To his dying day, the Apostle Paul loved sinners. He loved really bad sinners. Because, of course, he never forgot that he was one of them. Don't ever forget where you came from. Don't ever forget what your natural condition is. You are a wicked sinner by nature. And therefore, we must have sympathy for the worst of sinners, like the Apostle Paul. And sometimes it's helpful for me when I'm looking at someone who appears to be my enemy. From what he's saying, what he's doing... How he holds the church in contempt and Christ in contempt and the gospel in contempt and me in contempt. And I'm tempted to think of him as my enemy. And then the thought will come across my mind, you know, Saul used to do that. He used to really be after me. He he used to be looking for me to kill me. And then what did he end up doing? He's the one who gave me the gospel because he gave to all of Europe. And my forefathers and foremothers got the gospel because of a guy like that. Don't forget... The next greatest Billy Graham is now in the skin of a very wicked person somewhere. You go find him. He's out there. And so you, you, you must cultivate your love for others. And the Apostle Paul says that to these Corinthians who, of course, they're church people, but they're giving him a very hard time. Now in Romans 1, verse 14 and 15, I mentioned that here. Paul has a, an interesting way of putting this when he's talking about the Gentiles and his role in reaching them. And he says in verse 14, he says, I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then he says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says, I'm under obligation obligation that means I owe them a debt now there are two ways that you can owe somebody money you can owe somebody something if they loaned it to you and you owe it back that's one way to owe somebody something or if I give you ten thousand dollars and say would you please give it to the person sitting at the table next to you you owe them that ten thousand dollars because I gave it to you to give to him That's what Paul is talking about. I'm obligated to the Greeks. It's not because the Greeks gave him something. It's because God gave him something. And he says, give it to those guys. And that's what he has said to every one of us. We are in obligation to everyone in this city to get them the gospel, to allow them to see the gospel played out in community and in ministry, and to hear the gospel as we explain it to them. We're under obligation And the Apostle Paul uh, says here, if we are in our right mind, uh, it is for you. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the elect. And you don't know who the elect are. Once again, they're clothed in the skin of very wicked people like you. Those are elect people and you don't know which ones are elect. Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the elect. You'll find out one day who the elect were. Right now, they're undisclosed to you. So you go to all humanity. You do all things for the sake of the elect of those who are out there. That's what Paul is saying. This is real love. And love perseveres, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love hopes. Love perseveres. And our love for others in their lost condition certainly perseveres. But then Paul goes on in speaking about love to say, it is not only love for others, but in verses 14 and 15, secondly, it's love for Christ. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You'll find these statements by the Apostle Paul in, on several occasions in his ministry. One of the famous ones is when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he says that, that the Holy Spirit testifies to him over and over again that he is going to face imprisonment and afflictions. So the Spirit has already communicated that to him, that that's on his future path. But then he goes on to say to them, in order that they might understand why he's continuing to move forward, knowing that he's going to face these afflictions. He says in Acts 20, 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul has in his heart at all times exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. Gentlemen, you've got to know not just the what. What are you here for? Why are you doing it? And that it needs to be on the tip of your tongue because it's in the frontal of your brains. Why are you doing what you're doing? And Paul could give that at any moment's notice. And then somewhat later, you remember he travels then from the shores uh, from Ephesus uh, to uh, uh, Caesarea. And in Caesarea, Philippi, I'm sorry in, in Caesarea on the coast he is confronted by another prophet Agabus who says the one whose belt I have which was Paul's belt and Philip uh, or rather uh, uh, Agabus ties himself up and says the one who who's tied up by this uh, uh, or the one whose belt this is is going to be tied up like I am so he predicts to Paul that if he goes to Jerusalem he's going to face massive opposition and All the Christians there in Caesarea uh, plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul, once again, because it's in his heart, it just comes out automatically. He says, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then it just says, since he would not be persuaded, we all shut our mouths. So we have to have the reasons and the motives for our ministry in, in, right in our hearts because in this case, it was the church that was tempting Paul not to pursue his ministry. It's like one of you who says, you know, I want to go to a Saudi Arabia and, and be a missionary. We say, well, <laughs> that's, that's good. Uh, glad, glad you want to reach the lost, but have you read much about Saudi Arabia? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous place. And I'm not sure that this church wants to be responsible for sending one of its young people to Saudi Arabia. And you say, you don't seem to understand, Pastor. Uh, The Lord is leading me to Saudi Arabia, and I would rather die than not go to Saudi Arabia and obey the Lord. And I say, oh, okay, all right. You see, so even churches, your best Christian friends, can talk you off of being obedient to the Lord because they're aware of the great worldly price you're going to pay for obeying the Lord. So this love for Christ dominates everything. It trumps your love for your children. It trumps your love for your grandchildren, for your city, for your nation, for it all. Charles Hodge put it like this in his commentary. He said, The man who lives supremely for himself for his family, for science, for the world, for mankind. Whatever else he may be is not a Christian. So if you have anything else which is your supreme authority around which you build your life, you're basically in denial of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says it is the love of Christ that constrains us, that controls us, that guides us, that dictates what we do not anybody or anything else. Now, if you read the commentary by Paul Barnett uh, on 2 Corinthians, the one that we're using here in Amen, you would have heard him describe it this way. He says it's like a Copernican revolution. When Copernicus finally convinced us that the sun doesn't rotate around the earth, it's just the other way. The earth rotates around the sun. So we got a different center to our solar system. And Barnett said, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You get a different center to your life. And he put it this way. Barnett did. He said, Christ, not Paul, is the new center of Paul's universe. Egocentricity has given way to Christocentricity. Egocentricity gives way to Christocentricity when you come to Jesus Christ. Now that's a continual struggle for us. We have to continue to go back to our Copernican Revolution and remember that the earth does revolve around the sun. And we have to remember that Christ is the center of everything in our lives and all of our interests and passions and our duties rotate around Him. It's not about our pleasure, it's about His pleasure. We aim to please Christ, Paul says in the previous paragraph. And that's what we seek to do. This is what happens when we become genuine believers. It's very parallel, if you will, to, be, to becoming married. When you're a single guy, you basically make decisions based on what will promote your interest. When you get married, you'll find out, well, that changes. That changes. You no longer decorate your living room the way you used to decorate it. You know why? Somebody else lives there and she has better taste price than you have, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you don't decorate your living room the same way. You don't drive the same car you used to drive. Maybe she's going to drive a car she wasn't used to driving. A better car. Maybe you're not going to drive such a nice car. Maybe you're not going to spend that, all that money on a great fishing trip in Canada for two weeks. Maybe there's somewhere else you need to go with the wife, right? You have all kinds of changes that happen when you get married. Why? because you're making decisions now with another person in the middle of your universe. Well, what happens when you get married to Christ? Same thing. When you receive Jesus Christ, He becomes your bridegroom. He is the one to whom you're joined. You're married. You're, you're in uh, uh, established covenant with Him. And He takes the center of everything you do. It changes everything. That's what Paul is saying. He's the one who died for our sakes, and now we're going to offer our lives for him, that's the way it works. So twin motives, gentlemen, for your work in Christ, as you leave here and go <clears throat> go <clears throat> excuse me as you leave here and go to your workplace, twin motives for everything that you do. one person at the center of your life, Jesus Christ, and you are in awe of him, and you are in gratitude to him for the love that he's shown to you. The love of Christ controls us. Now, look at verses 16 through 19 and we see the mentality of the genuine Christian and the Christian messenger. Christian messengers have a distinctive mentality. We look at things and people differently. In 16a, we look toward all people differently. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Gentlemen, this is so important. When Christ comes into the center of our lives and He begins to be our teacher, to teach us what the universe is all about and why we are here and who human beings are and who created all things. And we read among the apostolic letters, they teach us clearly that everything was created by Christ, for Christ, through Christ, for His glory in Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the creator. We read in Hebrews that He sustains everything that He has made. So He's the sustainer. We read that He is the judge. We read that He is the redeemer. Christ is everything. And we are His creatures. And we see that we have sinned against Him. And so how do we now look at humanity? Well, if you're into politics, you see humanity as either liberal or conservative. You see them as either Republican or Democrat. If you look at the professional life someone's either a lawyer or a doctor or a businessman or an educator you think of people this way if you think in terms of military you think well they're either on the side of freedom or they're on the side of oppression or they're on our side or somebody else's side and so every time we look at humanity we tend to divide them up according to the categories that matter to us the most here's what paul is saying we don't do that anymore We don't look at men according to the flesh. We don't look at them and say, I wonder how much he makes. I wonder what what kind of job he has. I wonder how prestigious he is. I wonder who his friends are. I wonder how much he could give. We stop looking at men like that. We don't look at them according to the flesh anymore. How do we look at them? As creatures of God who have sinned against Him and who need a gospel. That's how we begin to look at people. And Paul says when we really love people, we begin to see them as they are. So the poor around the world happen to be also the people who have rarely ever heard the gospel. We look at them as fellow human beings who have an eternal destiny and who need the gospel. Paul says that is the mentality of the Christian man. And that's the reason Paul is saying to the the Corinthians, you're looking at preachers and sizing them up according to the flesh. Does he dress well? Is he articulate? Does he split his infinitives? And He said, I'm telling you that the way you should even look at your preachers is not according to the flesh anymore. The way you should look at them is, are they living out and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if they are, you receive that message as from God. And the same way that you go out and look at others in your workplace, you look at the masses. How did Jesus look at them? Look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35-38. through 38. You'll see how He looked at them. We are told that He looked at the crowds and had compassion upon them. Because He saw them as harassed and helpless, as sheep without a shepherd. That's how Jesus sees lost humanity. There's are sheep wandering all over the place and don't have a shepherd. What this world needs is shepherds. Men like you and me who will care for them and administer the gospel to them. And Jesus looks out and sees people out there They don't have shepherds. And so what does He say? He says, the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The shepherds are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, raise up shepherds and send them out, or raise up workers and send them out into his field. So, when Jesus looks at humanity, that's how he looks at them. And Paul is saying here, that's the way we look at them. We no longer size them up according to the flesh, we size them up according to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, gentlemen, for us to be effective in our civic work, our religious work, our personal work, in our families, with our wives and children, we must no longer see them according to the flesh. We see them according to the Spirit. Now secondly, notice that our mentality toward Christ changes. Paul says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. What does Paul mean? Well, Paul certainly by his own personal testimony could tell you he certainly had opinions about Christ. You know, if you read the statistics today, 97%... The American population says they have a high opinion of Jesus Christ. Well, that's good. What is their opinion of Jesus Christ? Well, he was an excellent teacher. He was a political transformer. He was a revolutionary in social justice. Uh, They have all kinds of ways of describing Christ. But Paul says, I used to look at him that way too. I thought he was a religious teacher. He was dead wrong, and I wanted to kill him. You know, I would have killed him if I'd had the opportunity because that was killing his. His disciples and followers. I used to think of Him according to the flesh. Yeah, I knew He died on a cross. I knew He taught certain things. uh, And I hated Him. I no longer look at Christ according to the flesh. I look at Christ according to what the Bible says about Him. That is, He is the true Son of God and the Messiah. He is the Judge of all the earth and the Redeemer of all who will come to Him. That's the way I see Him now. And the Apostle says... There's a, when you get converted, there are several conversions. And we're going to see them here in this text. The first one is your conversion to Christ. And you realize He is who He said He was. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. Very light of very light, the Word of God incarnate. He is the Son of a virgin. He did live a perfect life. He laid down His life on Calvary's cross. He was raised on the third day. He did ascend to heaven and rules there. I believe in who Christ is and I trust him. So we're converted to Christ. We're also converted even to the lost. And as we see in in verse 16a, we have a different view of other people now. So there's conversion of the way that we look at the world. Thirdly, notice in verse 17, there's a conversion toward the church, toward believers. We change our mentality about other believers. And Paul puts it this way, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You say, when I look at the church, that's not what I see. I see a lot of old behavior. I see adultery, drunkenness, backbiting, gossiping. Paul says you need some new eyes. He's talking to the Corinthians, I remind you. Look at this crowd. Just go back to our study in 1 Corinthians. That's this church. And Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new has come. It is working its way out. And if you have eyes to see it in the church, I'm not talking about unbelieving churches, of which there are many. I'm talking about believing churches that preach and believe and live out the gospel. You will see new life in those churches. Yes, of course, we're still living in bodies of flesh. Yes, of course, we're still sinners. But you'll see new life. If you're looking for hypocrisy as an excuse to turn your back on the church, you'll find all you want to find. And you'll find the most hypocrisy if you'll look in the mirror. It'll be really clear to you, you're looking at a hypocrite, but you because you're the one who's standing in judgment of those you say are standing in judgment. However, if you are looking for Christ in His real church, you'll find it. I've been on every continent except Antarctica, and I've seen Christians everywhere, and Sometimes I don't know the language when I'm going somewhere, but, you know, I can see Christ, even through the translator. I can see Christ and how they're loving God and worshiping Him. He is in His church, and so we have a new view of the church as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, we no longer look at people that way. We no longer look at Christ the way we looked at Him. We no longer look at the church the way we used to look at Him. And then he says in in verse 18, we have a different mentality toward ourselves. Because Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now He begins that verse by saying, All this is from God. A very important phrase. All is from God. All of your salvation. He is the one who pursued you, He's the one who provided the sacrifice. You know, in the Old Testament, you're supposed to bring your unblemished lamb, bring your best sacrifice to the altar. God provided the lamb for you. You didn't bring it. He brought it. He not only pursued you and atoned for you, but He's the one who reconciled you to Himself who got the relationship right. It's not because you finally turned around and repented. Yes, you did. But it was all of God. Why do you think you repented? Because He gave you His Spirit that moved you to repent. He's doing it all. So God gets the glory for all of our salvation. That's what Paul is saying. So when we're in our weakness, and he says to these Corinthians, you despise weakness. You're, You're impressed by strength and money and wealth and power. But when we're in our weakness, we are displaying the strength of God. And God works His strength through human weakness. That's what He's saying. And He says here, you've got to understand yourself. You are weak. But do you see what God has done for you? He has reconciled you to Himself. And He has now given you the ministry of reconciling other people to Himself. Do you understand how important this is? If we are right that Jesus Christ created everything and He's the only way to salvation. And we have a world of lost people, so lost they don't even know the way to be saved. And you've got the message and you've been given the commission to go take it to them. Folks, i got a word for you. That makes you important. So Paul is saying that we have a new view of ourselves when we come to Christ, we're converted to Christ, we're converted to the world, we're converted to the church, and we're converted to ourselves, to understand ourselves for the first time. I'll never forget several experiences that I had when I first became a Christian in my 20s. And I've told you about some of them, but one of them was clearly this. I felt like when I became a Christian on, on, in one week, I feel like in that week, it's as though I had gone to the employment office and finally gotten a job. Because now for the first time, I understood what my job in life was. It was not to be a professional preacher like I am now. I never had any thoughts I'd ever be a pastor. My job, though, was to carry out the kingdom of God. That explains everything in my life. It's a Copernican revolution. Christ takes up residence in my life. He takes the center place in my solar system and He deploys me on His agenda, not mine. I'm telling you what now, guys. If you will take on that agenda, you'll find your life to be the most exciting adventure it could possibly be. Paul, Paul says it really clearly here. Christ reconciled us to Himself. That's number one. We realize that we've been loved because we've been made friends with the One who is our judge. Our, the judge on the throne that we're going to meet one day, is your Papa. He's your Daddy. He loves you. You think He's going to condemn you? He has reconciled you to Himself, made you His child. That's number one. And then secondly, He's given you a ministry while you're here. And we've seen already, the only thing you can do better here than in heaven is reach lost people because there won't be any in heaven. Everything else in heaven, you'll do better. Worship, love people, all the rest. But ministering this Gospel, we've only got one chance and it's now. Now, fifthly, notice in verse 19 that our view toward God, the triune God, changes as a result of a new mentality. We have a new mentality toward God. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So here's how our view changes. When you're an unbeliever, God, if He's anything at all, If you're not an atheist, but let's say that you're a deist or a theist or something like like myself before I became a Christian, I generally would have had a theistic view of the universe. But God was, okay, so I may give Him credit for creation. Maybe I'll give Him credit for evolution. But I give Him credit for something. He's up there somewhere. And God is seen, however, more as a cosmic rule keeper and policeman and judge. And I don't see Him as loving Father. I don't see Him as my Savior. I don't see Him as someone who tenderly cares for me. I don't see Him that way. I see Him in a much more distant way as an unbeliever. Paul says we don't look at God the same way. Now we see God not as our enemy, but as our friend. We don't see Him as distant, but we see Him as intimately connected to us. We don't see Him as an uncle. We see Him as a father. We don't see Him as someone who's indifferent. We see Him as someone who's passionately invested in our lives. Our whole view of God has changed. And we no longer see Him as an uh, ill-defined Unitarian God. We see Him as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all of His glory. We've been converted to a new view of God and what His character is like. Now, that's what Paul is saying. When we come to Christ, we have a new mentality. Now, lastly, look at the last two verses. We're going to spend the rest of our time on this. They're extremely important. Christian messengers have a distinctive message. Christian messengers have a distinctive message. Oh, how important this is. First of all, the message is urgent in verse 20a. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. Okay, let's just stop right there. We are ambassadors for Christ. Now, some will say, Paul is talking about himself and Timothy and Silas and Titus and others who are in the apostolic leadership band. Well, it may be that Paul is saying, contrary to these super apostles that you're so impressed with, let me say, we are the ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's very possible. But brothers, remember, once again, Paul says throughout his epistles, and he certainly said it in first, first Corinthians, that we're to imitate Him. So he's not just speaking about the apostolic band. He's speaking about the apostolic church, which is you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just when, the same as when Jesus was talking to His disciples. Not just the twelve or the eleven. He was talking to His whole group of believers when He says this, now you wait until you receive power from on high. So you wait here in Jerusalem, don't start your evangelism until you receive the power from the Holy Spirit. And then He said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then what did He say? And you will be My witnesses. Now why did he say you will be my witnesses? Because when you receive power, you now have an experience. You're now a witness. So when you receive the Holy Spirit, you have experienced something. What does a witness do? A witness tells you what they've seen or heard. If you have a witness in the courtroom, they testify to what they experienced, what they saw or they heard. And here's what Jesus is saying. Before the court of the world, you can now testify to whatever it is you've experienced. And when you've experienced the Holy Spirit, you will then be my witnesses. Because who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. And Christ, the second person of the Trinity, along with the Father, the first person of the Trinity, sends the Spirit. And when you've received Him, you're now the witnesses. And so, your message is Christ is Lord, which is the reason I have the gift of the Holy Spirit, because Christ went to the right hand of the Father in order to send the gift of the Spirit, which I have received. And now I'm a witness of the Lordship of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in me. So, even though you never saw him with your own eyes, brothers, if you're a believer, you've received his Spirit, and you're now a witness. So, Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying here, that we're all ambassadors. We've all been reconciled. We've all experienced Him. We've witnessed His life and power. And therefore, we are His witnesses, His testifiers, or here, as Paul says, the ambassadors. Now, what does an ambassador do? ambassador goes on behalf of his government to another government. And so our government is the kingdom of God. And we are ambassadors going on behalf of our government of whom Jesus Christ is the governor, and we now are ambassadors, we are the legates, we are the communicators to all the nations of the world on behalf of the kingdom. That's what ambassadors do. That's our role. And he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now look at this next phrase. God making His appeal through us. Now this is amazing. Why? Well, because you know in warfare... If you're on the losing side, you're the one who then sues for peace, right? So if you're in a battle, when it's time to surrender, it's the vanquished who goes to the victorious and requests terms of reconciliation. That's the way it works. The vanquished pursues the victor. Look at this. It's just the opposite. God is the victor. He is the conquering king. We are the vanquished. We are defeated, judged, damned in our sins. Who is suing for peace? Not us. We don't give a damn, frankly. We don't even know to give a damn. But God Himself comes after us to sue for peace with people who are completely vanquished, defeated, under judgment, deserving nothing. Paul says we're the ambassadors of Christ, making He's God making His appeal through us. This, is, this has got everything turned around. It's just like the rest of the gospel. It's all turned around. God in His strength humbles Himself through Christ so that we might have a relationship with Him. And He's even pursuing us in reverse terms according to anything the humans have done for all of human history. No no victor has ever gone to the vanquished and sued for peace. That's ridiculous. But this is the way it happens in the gospel. And Paul says, Then therefore, look at the last phrase here in verse 20a, We implore you on behalf of Christ. So you understand now, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, if you're pleading with them to receive Jesus Christ, you are imploring them, you are urging them. This is the issue of most importance in their life. On behalf of God Himself, I come to you. And I can say that to you this morning. On behalf of God Himself, I plead with you to be reconciled to God. What a position you have. (laughs) I mean, think about it. People can spend their whole lives in the State Department and, and never get to be an ambassador. And certainly, if you get to be the ambassador to one of the big nations of the world, I mean, that is the dream, the creme de la creme of the State Department. Well, let me tell you something. Those people don't have anything on you. You are representing the king of all the kings. And he has made you an ambassador to go sue for peace with people who are at his feet that he's going to crush if they don't repent. And you have the opportunity of doing them a huge favor on behalf of this massively gracious king that you're serving. That's what Paul is saying. He said, that's the role I'm in. That's who I am. You all are missing it because you're looking, he says, at outward appearances instead of the heart. This is what's in my heart. I fear the Lord. I love the Lord. And this is my role. I have a new mentality and I have a new and distinctive message. So it's a very urgent message we see here in verse 20a. Now lastly, let's go to verse 21. And here we see that the message is profound. Gentlemen, uh, you can underline this verse. You can highlight it with yellow. You can circle it in gold. But I, above all, I just suggest you memorize it because it's one of the most precious verses in your Bible. In fact, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, in his, uh, in his uh, commentary on this verse Says there is no sentence more profound in the whole of Scripture. James Denny, an old uh, Presbyterian commentator of the 19th century, said, This is the keystone of the whole system of apostolic thought. Now that's a pretty big statement. So let's look at it. First of all, Paul says, Be reconciled to God. All right, let's start there. The heart of the Christian message is, The Christian message is here because there's a major problem. You're not reconciled to God. You remember when Henry David Thoreau was dying and uh, the minister came to him and said, Mr. Thoreau, I want you to be reconciled to God. And Thoreau's famous response was, I didn't know we needed to be reconciled. Well, that's a tragedy. People are out of sorts with God and don't even know they're out of sorts with God. The gospel solves a problem, gentlemen. It's not just icing on the cake, it's the whole cake. And the world needs to have it explained to them, if they'll listen, that they're out of sorts with God, that they are the enemies of God. They need to be reconciled. And a day is coming when anybody who's an enemy of the king of kings is going to be in really deep weeds so be recon- we plead with people to be reconciled to God. Now, notice, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, let's back up again. We're saying to the world, be reconciled to God. They've got a problem. They're out of sorts with God. Most people, before they're converted, when they hear that, will say, okay, look, I agree, I have been mad at God. We're out of sorts. I've been mad at him. And as Harold Kushner said in his famous book, uh, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, Kushner said, sometimes you just need to forgive God. That's what he said. Because he said, you know, God can't control everything. And you're mad at him because somebody died in your family. Or whatever it is. You got cancer. You're mad at him. You just, sometimes you just need to forgive God. This is the opposite of the forgive God routine. This is saying the problem, you knucklehead, is not that you need to forgive God, that God needs to forgive you. And the cancer you got is no comparison to what you deserve. Let's get something straight. And the miserable life you've had, you don't deserve to have one breath of it. And what you deserved in this miserable life is a lot more misery than you ever got. I don't mean to be cruel or unkind to those here who are afflicted. I'm just saying let's get this straight. We are out of sorts with God and it's not His fault. The problem is on ourselves. When we are told to be reconciled to someone, all you have to do is go back to Matthew 5 when Jesus is talking about reconciliation. He says, Remember what he says? He says, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that someone has something against you, lay down your gift and go be reconciled to your brother. You get the parallel? Jesus says, lay your gift down. Go to the one who has something against you and be reconciled to him. Same language here. Be reconciled to God. So guess who has the offense? God is offended, not you. Your conversion is not a matter of your laying down your grievances against God. It's just the opposite. For you to be reconciled to God, He's got to lay down His grievances against you. Now how's He going to do that? Because He's a righteous judge. Well, here's what He did. And it's right in this verse. He takes His own Son and sends Him to be born of a virgin, so He's bearing our flesh. And He lives a perfect life, so He deserves no condemnation whatsoever. And God, in His economy, looks at His own Son as though He were a sinner. So He who knew no sin became sin. How did He become sin? In the eyes of God. Because God imputed or reckoned our sin unto Him so that Jesus, the only perfect One who ever lived, actually, in this language, became sin so that we might get His record. He took our record on Himself so that we might take His perfect record on ourselves. Here you have it in verse 21. The divine exchange of records. Our record goes on Christ. His record goes on us, and therefore we're reconciled to God and He maintains His perfect justice as the ruler of the universe. He did not lessen His holiness or His justice one shred. He maintains the holiness of His judgments completely. And now that you bear the righteousness of Christ by trusting in Him, now by every right of justice, God must acquit you. Do you see this? It's not that he's just saying, okay, we'll let a few sins pass. No, he by his own perfect standards of justice must acquit you before the throne of God. And this is the reason that, that John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Not faithful and merciful. He says faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It is in His justice that He saves you because by His own accounting economy, He has reckoned the righteousness of Christ to you. You're clothed through the righteousness of Christ. This is the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is not you're deciding finally to live a good life or you're wanting to turn over a new leaf or you're even, can I say it, receiving Christ. Yes, you do receive Christ, but that's not the core of what's happened. What's happened is that Christ has received you and He has laid down His life for you. And He's pursued you. And He's pursued and sued for peace with you. He's all, it's all God who's done it for you. Glory be to His name. This is what the Apostle is saying. You've got to regain the Christian motives, the Christian mentality, and you've got to regain the Christian message so that we can do the job we were called to do, which is to be ambassadors for the living God. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this portion of Your Word and we pray that it will be emblazoned upon our hearts and minds and thus embedded in our souls. May we go into a lost and needy world and fulfill the the role that You have given us, this divinely exalted role of ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Grant us great wisdom and sympathy. Grant us great boldness and clarity that we may share the life of Christ with all around us. Even today, we make our prayer in Jesus' name.